so we're at this moment now where not only do I need to ask that older person in Canada to say, I want you to be sympathetic towards your kids and grandkids, and I know you have love for them, so that's an easy thing to do. But think about how what's contributed to some of your financial security has actually come at the expense of your kids and grandkids. This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. With me in conversation, we have from the University of BC and from Generation Squeeze, Dr. Paul Kershaw. Thanks for making the time. Thanks so much for the invitation. Paul, you're an academic, but you have this interesting intersection living on a farm. How does this keep you rooted? Oh, great. And I love the pun, by the way. I hope it was intentional. Um, I'm a public policy scholar. I'm in the business of trying to change public policy, whether that was like $10 a day childcare or thinking about improving housing policy or changing taxation. Those things don't happen overnight. They can often take years and years in the making. By contrast, being on a farm where you can plant a seed and then see what grows in the next short while, it's so darn concrete. Um, so I really love the the balance that the small farm provides. I get to see tangibly what I'm doing each day, the outcomes of it. I also, I'm not a person of faith, but I find a lot of reverence in the garden, working on the farm. And uh, I am someone who, because I'm concerned about intergenerational issues, I'm concerned about climate change and doing things on the farm, trying to absorb carbon from the air back into the ground. These are minor ways in which I feel like, oh, okay, I'm doing what I can to reduce some of the big risks out there. What do you mean by reverence? I kind of think of, I think of reverence in sort of the language of like, ah, oh, I am integrated in something so much bigger than me. Maybe I should have been an astronomer and looked up. I don't tend to do that as much. I wish I lived someplace I could snorkel and be like, you know, blown away by just all the life underneath the sea. But for me, where I am, it's um, the ecosystems around me on the farm. And yeah, I, yeah, I find myself feeling appreciative of, uh, um, you know, blessed uh, for what I have and you know, and then I guess maybe this segues to my professional fearful for all the risks we lose, all the risks of loss that are ahead if we don't make some important adaptations to leave a legacy of which we can be proud. Well, thanks for diving deeper on that. And let's segue to your professional work. So how do you go as someone who's an academic to you still are an academic, but you're almost like an activist now? It's funny. Uh, so I think in this era of fake news, I think that those of us who are privileged to work in the academy and university settings where our day jobs are to produce good research based on the evidence, even when the evidence isn't popular, to then try and give that evidence a fighting chance in the public arena and in the world of politics where people are remarkably good at giving things that are not true a great deal of profile. You know, the, the work I do at Generation Squeeze to not only produce good research, but then bring it to the public arena via the media into the policymaking arena. That's I view that all as part of the scholarly responsibilities of an academic today, and more and more so to universities, um, including my University of BC. Our strategic plan describes research excellence, not just as the creation of research, but its application for impact. Oh, well, you're very a good communicator, not just in the academic realm, but you're able to simplify the language so that the layman can interpret it. Uh, could you give me your elevator speech for how you see generational unfairness as a systemic problem? I might give you two versions of it. Okay. Okay. We so can take so we'll go up um, on the elevator and then we'll come down. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So here's where I would have started um, maybe half a decade ago when I was more focused on a younger demographic, trying to kind of light a bit of a fire under back then I was sort of us. Now I'm kind of depressingly middle-aged. But here's the reality of intergenerational unfairness for a younger demographic. A younger demographic goes to school longer, pays more for the privilege, uh, starting with student debt so much more than in the past, land jobs that pay thousands of dollars less uh, after adjusting for inflation, to then face housing prices that are up hundreds of thousands of dollars, which locks people out of homeownership for more and more of their lives. They compete for rent, which are on the rise. And one of the adaptation strategies that people delay starting their families. But because we're human beings, we've got biological clocks, you can only delay so long, tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. And when people launch into having their kids later in life now, then you incur a, another mortgage-sized payment to go on parental leave and can only be on leave so long. So then you incur another rent-sized payment to send your kids to childcare. That is the private vice grip in which a younger demographic finds itself. And that private vice grip is tightened still further because we inherit larger public debts from governments that are leaving unpaid bills for younger people by comparison with the past, and also environmental debts. So that would be sort of the way in which this, you know, the the intergenerational system is not rewarding hard work for young people as much as it used to. So I was up the elevator. Now I'm going to come back down. And I would say, if you're interested in housing unaffordability, or you're interested in climate change, or you're concerned by government debts or underinvestments in the generation raising young kids. Why was it so take so long in Canada to build like a childcare system when so many other countries did it years ago? Well, these are all symptoms of an underlying intergenerational disease. We've been in a moment where we've extracted so much of the good stuff. Uh, and left less of it behind for those who follow. So our housing system has allowed people like me and older than me to extract so much wealth out of our housing system that we leave unaffordability left over the, for those who walk in my footsteps, young people and newcomers of any age. From In terms of climate change, we've extracted so much of the atmosphere's scarce capacity to absorb carbon. We leave extreme weather as our legacy. In terms of tax dollars, we absorb so much of the tax dollars from economic growth these days and invest it later in the life course. And people I love, like my mother, for her medical care and old age security, but then leave less left over to invest in things like childcare or housing or fighting climate change for her kids and grandchildren, along with very large unpaid bills. Each of those issues is a symptom of this underlying disease, which is a broken intergenerational system. Hmm. And this becomes systemic when it's both private and public. How would you define when this became systemic? Well, I guess I'm not sure. It, I'm not sure I would answer that it became systemic at some point. I would say that we're talking about systems from the get-go. Systems sustain themselves because a majority of actors, whether intentionally or otherwise, make decisions that reinforce them. Um, and so, you know, if you think about our housing system, I often talk about how we're kind of culturally addicted to the the idea that home prices should be high and rise. And so, if you think about how the media talks about housing, they will say the housing market is healthy when home prices are rising. They'll say the housing market is weak when home prices are stalling. That clearly signals that culturally we think of housing not first and foremost as a place to call home, but as an investment. And that that sense of like what is housing for, that cultural idea, 
that, you know, oh, we want it to rise faster than local earnings. That gives rise to attitudes and norms and behaviors that perpetuates unaffordability. So that, I would say that that's what I mean by a system. You know, it's your decision about what you're going to do in, t- in terms of how much you pay for rent or what mortgage you take on and whatnot. Like individuals can't affect all the outcomes, but, you know, but all of us making decisions come together in this complex way and create a housing system. The same goes with regards to, you know, our tax systems. The same comes in regards to, you know, our, our climate systems or our environmental policy systems. It took a long time. Jen Squeeze was part of a group that went literally to the Supreme Court to defend the constitutionality of putting a price on pollution so that we didn't leave larger and larger amounts of pollution, which we do more of when it's free or inexpensive for those who follow in our footsteps, when we know that that is so costly economically and in terms of people's health. So the systems are the cultural norms and attitudes and policies that create incentives that shape our behavior. And right now, a group like Gen Squeeze is kind of in a battle to ask all of us, young and old alike, to look in the mirror, look at our loved ones around our family tale and say, how might we be implicated, whether intentionally or not, in making decisions that perpetuate housing unaffordability and wealth inequality, you know, extreme weather as a legacy that's so risky, uh, large deficits and unpaid bills that we leave even when we're not in a recession. That's super helpful. And you've been uh, successful in in lobbying some of this stuff towards provincial federal governments, the first ever reporting of age trends in federal public finance. Do you think that people are are grasping what you're what you're putting out there? Yeah, I mean, I'm an impatient guy, so there's a part of me like you know, people say, "Ah, oh, you're a failure, not doing this as fast." Uh, because I, you know, I just think, oh, if people listen, when Gen Squeeze first sounded the alarm, we said, "Code Red, there's a housing emergency in 2015." I'm just like, if we had 2015 prices now, people would think it's amazing. We thought it was bad in 2015. So no, um, yeah, we make some progress, and we are slower than I would like. But let's talk about some of the progress for a minute. Um, you referenced how in 2018, 2019, we worked with the federal government to make incremental progress in there, acknowledging that they need to bring an age or generational lens to their budget preparation. And so it's not perfect. We've continued to kind of poke and conjole and say this needs improvement. But it is the case that when any department at the federal level now asks for new money, they have to submit a treasury submission that includes not only like, like how will this play it across genders or along race lines or class lines, but also will it impact an older demographic more, a younger demographic more? Is it kind of neutral? And so that's partly giving rise to some systems change. If any of your listeners have ever heard the language of $10 a day childcare, this is something that's coming more and more in Ontario. Yep. Well, that branding of $10 a day childcare for a national childcare recommendation started in the lab uh, at Generation Squeeze at UBC in 2010. And, um, you know, it took some time with some other groups like the Coalition of Childcare Advocates out here in BC and Early Child Educators of BC and others across the country to be building more momentum. But it is not coincidental that when 11 years later, the federal government uh, finally said it was going to introduce $30 billion of new spending and billions more thereafter for childcare, that it labeled it $10 a day. And so that, you know, that came about by changing people's hearts and minds and giving us a frame that made it, oh yeah, I see why we might need to do something new or different than we did in the past. Let's talk about some of these factors that have contributed to why uh, it's exposed this intergenerational unfairness as you've as you put it 
Uh, so one, people are living longer. So there's now more costs to cover things like healthcare than there used to be. One of the arguments you make is that we should be covering needs that each generation needs. But how do you reconcile that? Because uh, we still need to be able to do our due diligence and make sure that we're looking after the elderly, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, what Canadian doesn't want to look after their older loved ones? These are our parents, our aunts and uncles and grandparents. It's a it's a true Canadian value, one I take great pride in. And so, you know, Gen Squeeze, our vision is intergenerational solidarity. How do we make Canada work for all generations? And, you know, and in some of my writing and some of the other podcasts, well, our own podcast at Hard Truths at Gen Squeeze, I often invoke this notion of love. Like, you know, there's love around a family table. <laughs> Even when around that family table these days, you can be a member of the older generation and say, oh, my kids and grandkids can't afford housing like we did. Like, what the heck's going on? And maybe they won't have as many grandkids as I might like. So, but, you know, there's love around there. So how do we bring that into the world of politics? But it's not if you, if you think about where you started, where like people are living longer, and so that's the challenge that we're needing to adapt to that's making it more expensive. It's not cool. That's one factor, but that alone wouldn't have been the big issue. Mm-hmm. The bigger issue is people would have heard the term baby boom. And we use that term to characterize a demographic, you know, effectively a group of people who were, you know, became of age as young adults during sex, drugs, and rock and roll in the 60s and 70s, and uh, now they're in retirement. And what's important about the baby boom is the boom reflected, there are a lot of them. After the war years, people came home, there was a lot of reproduction, didn't actually have as much birth control right away. And so we had larger families. And we knew that this large demographic was going to slowly but surely move its way through a life course, going from kids to young adults to middle career, et cetera, you know, raising their own families, and now into older age. And it's one of those moments, just like other problems, whether it's, you know, or other adaptations that are, whether it's climate change or just seeing home prices leave earnings before, like we knew we could see it, you could predict it for anyone who's looking at how this is going to play out at a systems level. But it was convenient and easier to not adapt. And one of the major ways we didn't adapt is that when our country built our medical care system or a system of old age security, There were seven working age residents for every retiree. And we're like, hey, this is not so hard to actually create a good system to support people later in their lives because there's a lot of workers. There's seven of us. There's only one retiree. So seven of us can pool together some income to support a retiree in old age for their medical care and income needs. But because the baby boomers have been such a big group over time, now that they're retiring, we're closer to three workers for every retiree. That means there's so much more pressure on a younger demographic right now to use its tax dollars to contribute to the medical care and old age security of a much larger number of seniors by comparison with their working age population, which would have been great if a younger demographic was doing so fabulously, if their incomes were so much better today by comparison with the past, especially when measured relative to the cost of living. But that's not the case. Younger demographic has had the most economic vulnerability shoved its way. They've lost ground. You know, it used to take five years of full-time work for a young adult to save a 20% down payment on an average-priced home when my mom started out in the housing market in the mid-70s. Now it takes 17 years across the country, 22 in Ontario and BC, 27 in the GTA in Metro Vancouver. And so a younger demographic is feeling the financial squeeze 
from the economy at the very moment we're feeling the financial squeeze from the demographic shift creating an older population that didn't get asked by the tax rules of the day to pay taxes at a level that would cover the expenses in medical care and retirement income support that they are now wanting to and needing to use. That doesn't mean they didn't pay taxes according to their the rules of the day. They paid taxes dutifully during their working years. They raised their family, did what the rules asked for them. The problem is the rules were stacked against their kids and grandchildren, and either nobody told them that or they didn't pay enough attention to actually recognize it. And so on their watch, the system stacked things in favor <laughs> of that older demographic, making it, you don't have to pay as much taxes now during your working lives. And we'll just leave the problem for those who follow in your footsteps. And that is what we're coming to incur now at this moment where people talk about our healthcare system being in crisis. We talk often about there being a doctor shortage, but actually there are more doctors per capita today than there were when baby boomers started. I don't, every year over the last decade, we've been growing uh, the doctors per capita, um, generally speaking. But what's different is the complexity, the care that people need is increasing now. Why? Because we have so many more people who are later in their lives and that's when we become more frail. It's a reality of the human experience. And so we knew it was going to become more challenging and more expensive to deal with this moment in the life course of a large generation. We didn't adapt decades ago. We're now using every so much of the revenue we can create from economic growth to, to pay for those adaptations needed by an older demographic now. That's leaving less left over to fight off unaffordable housing, to fight off climate change, to invest in things like childcare urgently. And that creates these tensions. And so that's why, you know, we started our conversation having people try and recognize like, what is a systems change? What's happening at the systems level? And that's really where we need to focus our attention, which means we need in particular a younger demographic to lean more into thinking about how do I shape politics? Mm. Because you can't work your way out of a broken intergenerational system individually. Very few young people, unless you're like, you know, the, the you know, the people who are creating the next Facebooks and Googles of the world, a few of a few people might individually able to work their way out of this broken intergenerational system, but the vast, vast, vast majority won't. And we have to do that collectively. We do that through politics. Well, I mean, this audience wants to be informed ultimately with having conversations like this and and wanting to grow in empathy and being being able to enter into people's situations and and so you're you're raising that and I wonder if there's uh, yeah what you would say to someone who's hearing this maybe for the first time or or just uh, some insights are like you know really blowing them blowing up their mind a little bit uh, how can they keep learning how can they uh, not even necessarily like in, in devouring stuff from Generation Squeeze which we want to point them to but just trying to see the world through this lens. Yeah, I think the, the, the key point I would encourage people to engage with now, especially in older demographics, is as follows. Earlier in Generation Squeeze, our mission was to have a younger demographic realize that their hard work wasn't paying off as much as it used to, but it wasn't their fault. There was something bigger going on. There was this, these systemic problems that weren't rewarding hard work in the same way, whether it was housing or government policy or climate change, so on. I think we've been reasonably successful for that. I think you can find, you know, across our news media that people are aware that a oh, younger demographic is, you know, struggling today economically by comparison with past uh, generations of young people. But we didn't move the conversation on like, what were kind of the root causes of that? And so we're at this moment now 
where not only do I need to ask that older that older person in Canada to say, I want you to be sympathetic towards your kids and grandkids. And I know you have love for them, so that's an easy thing to do. But you, might you think about how what's contributed to some of your financial security has actually come at the expense of your kids and grandkids. And that is the harder conversation, but being open to that possibility, what you didn't necessarily wasn't intended by people, but how unintended consequences or being, you know, something happening on your watch that you didn't prevent now materializing. And like, what do we do at that moment to lean in and say, ah, oh, I'm not being primarily harmed by this, but I'm kind of implicated and I got to get off the sidelines to help contribute to a solution. And actually, I really want to because the people who are going to benefit are people I love. Mm -hmm. That's the conversation we need to have, whether that's asking people to be open to, you know, paying for their pollution so that they don't leave that to, you know, the consequence of that to be inherited by those who follow by thinking about how, um, in this day and age, if we need more resources for medical care for an aging population, might some of those older people in Barrie and elsewhere who've you know gained a decent amount of equity in their home, could they contribute some of that uh, home equity to the covering the cost of their medical care so that we don't have to tap into the squeezed income um, you know, of their kids and grandchildren's demographics? How can we have an older voice say, hey, politician, conservative, liberal, NDP, and green, you want my vote? You better be sure you protect medical care and old age security, but not at the expense of my kids and grandkids and what they need in terms of public investment. Mm -hmm. And more and more, you know, the kryptonite that a group like Gen Squeeze faces is when a younger demographic is viewed to be saying, ah, you know, an older demographic, as many good things that they did, some things didn't go well on their watch. That, that gets interpreted often as like we're pitting generations against one another. But when a member of that older demographic says, uh, you know what, I can see that things didn't entirely go as we might have liked for our older demographic in terms of what we're leaving for those who follow. When they say it, it's not pitting generations against one another. It's an older demographic leaning in to achieve solidarity with those who follow. So there's so much power in growing mm -hmm. the number of older voices that say, I think we can improve the legacy we're leaving. That's the conversation we need. I don't have a magic bullet about how to perfectly do that yet. And sometimes I trip and sometimes I turn people off when I get to the hard truth too quickly. But if there are some older listeners out there who want to be sure this country works for all generations and that they leave a legacy of which they can be proud, the time is ripe to bring your voice to this conversation and say, my generation can still do better. Well, that's eye-opening and a challenge that we all need to let marinate a little bit more about where this generational inequity comes from and what we could do as far as taking action. We've been in conversation with Paul Kershaw from the University of British Columbia and from Generation Squeeze. Thanks so much for sharing with us today. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation and the opportunity to talk about this not as a soundbite, but uh, in some real depth. I think that's what we need as a country. Next time on Culture at a Crossroads. Since the passing of Queen Elizabeth and the recent coronation of King Charles, things have changed for Canada as a country. We're going to get into the coat of arms, the crown, and how this all comes full circle with Canada's founding dominion as Canada Day is ahead. Don't miss my conversation with a repeat guest and the former rector Brian McVitie. 
And we do invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection between faith and culture, helping to better equip you in following Jesus in Canada.